0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 10th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, when setting policies to deal with epidemics, there are two distinct goals. One, of course, is to save lives, while the other is to block the continuing transmission of the disease. And blocking transmission ultimately saves lives, but the benefit might not be identifiable to any particular individual. So as we consider the policies that we've instituted in the past and might use in the future, how should we think about the potential benefits of these policies? Going back to the beginning of the pandemic, in the early days, we had very little in the way of specific interventions, and almost all of our policies were directed against transmission. So looking at those policies now, how well do they
1: hold up? Steve, the kinds of things that we were doing early on in the outbreak could be lumped together as social measures. Since we didn't have any specific therapies or vaccines at first, all of our interventions relied on blocking an infection. In retrospect, these varied widely in terms of their efficacy. Let's start with what was probably the most effective measure. During the initial outbreaks in Wuhan and in Northern Italy, there was a very high attack rate among healthcare workers. However, as masks became more widely available again, infection rates in hospitals dropped precipitously. Even though the hospitals where we are in Boston were overflowing with patients, the vast majority of infections among healthcare workers were being contracted outside of the hospitals. It's impossible to measure the precise efficacy of masks. People wear lots of different types and all have a different air filtering capacity. But anecdotally, the surgical masks that most people wore early on and continue to wear now in the hospital do seem to be highly effective. Of course, people have taken other barrier measures, including gloves, gowns, and goggles. But I suspect that these have contributed much less to protection. There's nothing specific about masks. They protect you against many respiratory infections. In fact, when masking was most common, we saw influenza virtually disappear. I think that this really works, and it remains our most effective measure at blocking transmission.
2: Eric, as you point out, early on in the pandemic, it was very challenging because we didn't understand this virus, its biology, how it was transmitted the severity of illness it caused. And as you note, many healthcare workers early on succumbed to severe COVID infection. Once masks and other barrier technologies were applied, that dramatically decreased. And I agree, it's not the fancy stuff. It's the basic, when I wear a mask, I spread less. And when you wear a mask, you breathe in less of what I am spewing. And I think that basic barrier concept made a huge difference early on, especially in the healthcare setting. However, as we've understood transmission dynamics better, and we've been able to understand high-intensity transmission environments, like caring for those very sick with COVID, we realize that transmission has evolved from that setting to really the community. And here, it may be a lower risk per encounter but a higher risk due to very large numbers of encounters. And that's something we had to deal with in the beginning of 2020 through the present. Where are we exposed? And how do we ameliorate those exposure events? And the hospital is one, but then there's community interactions, there's the home, there's other types of social circumstances. And that becomes a lot more complicated, as you suggest, to understand the transmission dynamic and to
0: bring in proper technologies to diminish it. And what about other social measures that were taken during the early phase of the pandemic?
1: I think it's likely that many of these were more variably effective. Quarantine and isolation definitely work, but they're difficult and expensive. And depending on an individual's living situation, they can be almost impossible to pull off very successfully at least to decrease transmission via droplets, which probably represents the bulk of transmission. But it's very difficult to sustain, and it's almost impossible to measure its effect at a time when most were masking. Better air filtration can also have an impact on many diseases, but again, it's hard to determine if it has had that much of an impact. My guess is that sending people outdoors is a pretty effective measure, while wiping down groceries and other measures that limited exposures to fomites probably contributed very little but we don't have any actual measures of these. So it's difficult to determine their relative importance.
2: And Eric, I think implied in your comments, which was a real struggle early on with COVID, was our ability to diagnose. And I think the development of diagnostic technologies and the ability to go to scale and to maintain quality and rapid turnaround is a critical element to be able to then apply these different control measures like quarantine, isolation, physical distancing. And I think that's something that not enough attention has been paid to and something that we're dealing with today as we think about monkeypox and other viruses that we worry about their transmission. Are we able to diagnose rapidly, early, and then think about interventions that can decrease transmission and then come up with the proper ways to systematically assess their contribution to blocking transmission.
1: Lindsay, the upside of these is that they're relatively easy, at least many of them are very, are relatively easy, and you can implement them right away. And as you said, you don't need to know anything about the virus beyond that it's a respiratory virus to implement these and have some efficacy right from the start. The downside, of course, is that they take Cooperation. People have to participate. And that certainly has been problematic, either because people elect not to or because they forget. So the kinds of things that are automatic that require minimum participation can be more effective, even if these are highly effective interventions.
2: So, Eric, I think that you're correct that many of these interventions are easy, such as wearing a mask. The problem is during the 24 hours of a day, with the hundreds of interactions, including with loved ones, it becomes very hard to systematically apply these different preventive technologies, however simple they are. And I think that's where transmission of pathogens that are respiratory in nature are so much more difficult than those that require physical contact. And I think that requires an understanding of the biology of transmission and how one thinks about it through the whole day, not just in, if I may, high-risk environments like a healthcare setting, which are really very different
0: than the majority of how most of us spend our days. Early in the outbreak, there was a focus on how to treat patients who were already infected. As we've developed increasingly effective therapies, what effect have those had on transmission?
1: It's important to remember when various therapies were introduced. Our first effective therapies were really focused on the very sickest patients. That means that these were active late in the course of disease. These therapies included managing hypoxemia with prone positioning and various anti-inflammatory medications, most notably glucocorticoids. But since these treatments only work relatively late after infection. The people who receive them largely aren't shedding virus at high levels or perhaps at all. So they don't represent significant sources of infection. Thus, treating symptoms at that point has very little impact on transmissions.
0: So, what about the newer direct acting antiviral agents?
1: These drugs are only effective early after infection when viral replication is playing an important role in pathogenesis. They clearly do work to help keep people out of the hospital and from developing more severe disease. However, we've published several studies that show that viral shedding peaks very earlier after infection, and in most people, drops rapidly to the point where viable virus can't be isolated by six or seven days after infection. Although we don't have a direct link, this probably represents a very low risk of ongoing transmission, and people almost always present for treatment after they've become symptomatic, likely at least a couple days after the onset of viral replication. I suspect that in most people, we miss the peak of viral replication and that it doesn't last very long after that. This means that while there may be a small impact on the length of time of transmission, it is pretty small.
2: But I think, Eric, as we think about transmission, a complicating feature, something that we as a community struggled with two years ago, is the spectrum of illness, including many individuals who may have asymptomatic infection or posi-symptomatic infection, yet have replicating virus and therefore at risk for transmitting to others. And I think this is such a critical difference between SARS-CoV, the original one, if I may, versus SARS-CoV-2. And I think that biologic difference between High level viral amplification days post significant illness versus a large number of individuals who may have limited to no symptoms yet have replicating virus. And I think that is a big driver in the transmission setting. And then as we think about the treatment setting, it's not clear that everyone gets really sick at a predictable time point in the viral replication. And so defining how viral replication intersects with clinical illness is critically important to understanding which of our therapies make sense, such as direct acting antiviral agents, which really need to be applied in the setting of viral replication. And that implies a sophisticated understanding of the biology of infection.
1: It's a really good point, Lindsay. It's very difficult to come up with interventions that are going to make a substantial difference in people who are asymptomatic, as long as that intervention requires us identifying people who are infected. The sorts of interventions that we'd have to make are prophylactic, ones that prevent infection rather than preventing transmission to deal with a disease which is transmitted asymptomatically quite frequently.
0: Vaccines have the potential to both protect individuals and limit societal transmission. That's certainly true for several other infections. What have we learned in that regard through the course of the COVID-19 outbreak?
1: The COVID vaccines did exactly what you said they would do, Steve, when they were first introduced by decreasing the rate of infection by over 90%. If they'd been implemented widely, they would have had the capacity to have a very large impact on the epidemic overall. And not just benefit the people who receive them. Unfortunately, we ran into both societal and scientific issues. There was and remains an enormous amount of opposition to vaccination, and the vaccines don't work as well as they once did. Let me start by being very clear here. Vaccines have saved millions of lives and they continue to save lives every day. No one should think otherwise. However, it's clear that the ability of vaccines to prevent infection as opposed to severe disease has decreased. And that's for two reasons. One is that the levels of immune protection have decreased over time. And what may be more important is that the new variants have appeared, which are not well neutralized by the immune responses induced by the antigens that we're using now. It's still true that current vaccines have a good ability to prevent serious illness. However, they've lost most of their ability to prevent infection. This means that while vaccines were very effective public health tools at the beginning of the outbreak, they've become less so with time.
2: I guess, Eric, it depends what you mean by effective public health tools. If one wants to prevent collapse of the hospital system, which was a significant threat in many countries two years ago. I think vaccines and other interventions have dramatically altered that trajectory. If we are talking about community transmission, then you're absolutely right, which is what I think you were getting at. Vaccines have a limited impact at this time in preventing community transmission as we're witnessing surge after surge after surge in individuals who have either been vaccinated, infected, or both. So a fair amount of background hybrid immunity. And this speaks to the evolution of the virus in the context of the threat to its success, i.e. human immunity that retards infection or diminishes severity of illness. So I think we're in a very different place now than two years ago. How to prevent transmission, I think is becoming much more difficult how to prevent severe illness. I think we still are being highly successful. That then begs the question that we as a community are facing, which is what is the goal of our COVID public health interventions? And how do we think about achieving that goal? It seems unlikely to me that we are going to be able to eradicate SARS-CoV from circulation. I remain optimistic that we can convert it to a common cold like the other four seasonal coronaviruses that we're all used to. However, there is still substantial risk of mutational events that could lead to increased severity, hence the need for us to stay vigilant and to continue to develop therapies that can diminish transmissibility as well as severity of illness.
0: So taking that further and speculating a bit, What new approaches might help us limit the continuing spread of COVID-19, particularly as new variants arise?
1: Steve, that's a great question, and it gives me a chance to respond to what Lindsay just said. I'm a little less, perhaps, pessimistic than he is, even though he listed himself as optimistic. I do think that there are potential technological breakthroughs that really could have a tremendous influence on our ability to control disease. and. I don't know what those will be, but thus far we've really only taken a single approach with vaccination to prevent infection. It's certainly conceivable that other vaccine approaches could make a difference. Right now we're using almost entirely a single antigen or whole inactivated viral vaccines. The whole inactivated viral vaccines as has been seen with other viruses are only modestly effective. The single antigens are good, but they leave us open to the antigenic changes that occur with the virus. And the questions are, do these vaccines induce the right kind of immunity to give us the best protection? And is this the right single antigen to use? I think we're exploring some of that right now with changing antigens, although a single antigenic change is unlikely to be enough. But certainly, we could think about inducing other kinds of immunity, for example, inducing immune responses on mucosal surfaces that might make a substantial difference to what is essentially a mucosal infection. There are no guarantees here, but I think it's entirely possible that we could do better at preventing infection than we're doing right now.
2: So, Steve, I'd like to look at this question from a slightly different vantage point in the sense that. I worry about COVID exceptionalism, and I worry a lot about the other respiratory viruses that for our lifetimes have caused severe illness like influenza and RSV, among others. And I think we have to think about the approaches that can help us with respiratory viruses in general. And they're the barrier approaches that we discussed earlier, which I think had a big difference in respiratory viral infection in general, given the dramatic diminution of them for the last two seasons. And I think, Eric, as you point out, there are vaccine strategies that can be used creatively, either those already available with different platforms that could be potentially mixed and matched, or different antigens that could be mixed and matched, or going. To the source, which is where exposure occurs, such as mucosal surfaces, but those still need to be developed, so they're a little further out than some of the tools that are currently available. So I am optimistic, but I think that we have to really think creatively about the tools that are available, the tools we need to create, and beyond SARS-CoV-2, because influenza Historically, causes tens of thousands of deaths in this country alone, which it's not done in the last year or two, but may well come back. And we need to think about how we apply what we've learned from COVID, not only to COVID, but to severe respiratory infections in general. Because I think it's the same way of thinking. We just have to develop the tools, do the science, and figure out the public health deployment.
1: Lizzie, you make a good point. One of the reasons though, that we were able to respond so quickly to the COVID epidemic was set in policy. Clearly there were really tremendous incentives to developing the original therapies and the original vaccines for COVID. Now those incentives don't exist. It's gonna be that much more difficult to come up with the next generation of antivirals and of vaccines in the current environment.
2: Eric, I think that's a very important point, which is the incentive structure and the incentive structure for vaccines up until the current pandemic has been very poor. And I think that's something we're going to have to take a careful look at is how do we as a society, from a policy standpoint, from a governmental funding to an industry, more traditional incentive model, have the right forces in place to encourage people to innovate and develop these public health tools. We all benefit from them, but there has to be a proper incentive structure to really fuel the development, which was unique in the last two years, but needs to be set in place as we look forward to developing more countermeasures for these pandemic pathogens.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.